0: Church said, Amen. Amen. And before you're seated, would you greet your neighbor and say hello to them this morning? This morning in in the sermon, I want to speak with you about Jesus saves. Words change in church. Did you know that? A few years ago, I don't know how many, but 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 years or longer, um, Jesus saves was a really popular expression. You remember the little wristbands? When they first invented rubber bands that went on your wrist, one of them had the little uh, expression, WWJD what would Jesus do? You remember those? That phrase kind of came and went. And people don't really ask that question too much anymore. What would Jesus do? I remember years ago, I was in college. There was a little situation. I think I shared the story once, so I won't give you all of the gory details, but we were traveling. I was in a, a musical group. We were traveling through a little southern Alabama town, and the bus driver was driving the bus. And we came through this town. We were going a little faster than we should have. We got pulled over. The officer came up to the window. He said, uh, Mr. Jackson, do you realize you're speeding? Yes, he was. Great. And he says, I see this is a bus for the Alabama Christian College, because it's on the side of the bus. And he said, Yes, we're a singing group from the school. He said, And, and the police officer, he said, he asked Al, he said, Al, are you saved? Are you saved? And I'll never forget his response. I hope so. And the officer, being the witty person that he was, he said, well, I know I am. And I just wonder sometimes if you know that you're saved. You know, there's a conversation that's happened among churches for a long, long time It goes something like this. Are you, if you've been saved, are you always saved? Once saved, always saved. You heard that expression? We don't use that one much anymore either. And I know that there are some in the church that are like, well, no, once saved, always saved. That's not really always the truth. I've been saved 12 times. And I'm hoping the last one takes, because I'm getting older. You know what I'm saying? Back in the earliest days of the church, in probably the second into the third century, there were actually some brothers in the church who were promoting among the disciples, don't get baptized until you're old. Because we don't want you to get baptized and then fall away from the Lord and then face judgment, because The word says that you'll be worse off if you come and go away than if you had never met him. And they were really advocating that there were some who, they they were advocating don't get baptized until you're really old, until you know you're about to die, and then you know you got it. Are you saved? Words have a way of coming and going. You remember things from your college professors. Some of you remember some of those things from a college or high school professor, maybe things that you don't want to remember. But there's some things you do, and there's one phrase that I remember my Greek professor said, he told me one time, he told all of us who were in the class with him, Jack McKinney, he said, if you guys stay with me for one year, you're going to think you know everything if you study Greek. He said, if you'll stay with me two years, you'll realize that you are beginning to scratch the scratch of the surface, and if you stay with me the third year, you'll realize you know nothing. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that expression. I'm not here to give you a Greek lesson today, but I am here to share with you some things about this expression in this statement, Jesus saves, that maybe is just a little bit different than what you might be accustomed to. So I want you to bear with me, and I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to cause you to think about some things today that maybe you've thought about but maybe you haven't thought about, and perhaps you haven't because you haven't seen the words before, and I want to share with you the words. There's a wonderful story in the book of Mark about a woman who has this uncleanness about her. She has this bleeding issue. And for some time, she's had this a number of years, and she has it on her heart. Jesus is coming through town, and there's this whole crowd of people around Jesus, and, and, and she is wanting to just touch the hem of his garment, and she thinks, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll, then I'll be cured, and I'll be well. And so she works her way through the crowd, and she reaches to the back of Jesus, and she touches his garment. And Jesus knows it. He wants to know where the power gone from. And he said this to the woman, daughter. Do you notice the tone of his voice? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, the translators made it easy for you there because they translated it, Your faith has healed you. And he says, Go in peace. There's more to the story than just healing because Jesus truly saves. And what Jesus really said to her was, daughter, your faith has saved you. There's another story in the Gospel of Luke. There's this blind man. And I don't know if you studied anything about the history of people back in the day, but if you know anything about those who were crippled or lame or who had ailments that would prohibit them from working, they were kind of the cast-outs. And they were left to kind of fend for themselves, and folks would be kind enough to set on places and do things with them, but they really weren't well taken care of, and many of them resorted to begging. We have the same thing in Southern California. They're called homeless. And most of the homeless that we have in Southern California, an overwhelming majority of them have something that's caused them to be there. Now, they may, it may be self-inflicted. Okay? It it may well have been self inflicted. There could have been a significant amount of drug and alcohol use in their lives that's just totally ravished and, and wrecked everything about them. But the reality is, they're out there. And their family has said, go away. And I don't want you. So this man is here, the blind beggar. He's yelling at Jesus as Jesus comes by in the crowd. Son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Jesus finally, he gets his, Jesus' attention and Jesus comes over to him. He says, what do you want? He said, I'd like to see. So Jesus heals him. And he says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. What well, really Jesus said to him was, your faith has saved you. Healing, saving, it's all the same word in Jesus' world. As a matter of fact, it is the same word in Jesus' world. In Luke, there's a story told of a woman. This woman doesn't have an illness, she's a sinner. She's apparently a woman of the street. And has made her living doing things that aren't exactly wholesome and healthy, nor are they complimentary of her. And she comes to Jesus, and she brings this oil, and she anoints Him, and she is in a crowd of people who realize and recognize and understand who she is and what she's done. And they call this to Jesus' attention. And Jesus, for whatever reason, says your faith. Has saved you. Isn't it interesting that translators will talk about someone who has a physical illness and when Jesus says your faith has they insert the word healed and yet when someone comes to Jesus who has a sin problem and he uses the same word they let us know that Jesus has saved them. It's easier for us if we can insert the word healing because it fits our theology much better. But there's something about Jesus and the power that he has with people and who he is and what he does and how he changes them that causes them to be saved, and brings them to that relationship with Him. Call it what you may, that Jesus saves. And it's also interesting that Jesus speaks to these women and He says, I want you to go in peace. I've got to be honest with you. These two gals to whom He's speaking had a lot of baggage with them. You have one woman who has this bleeding, this hemorrhaging that she's been dealing with for years and years and years and if you know anything about the Old Testament law, if you know anything about the uncleanness that went along with the woman in her menstrual cycle, no one could touch her. No one could be near her. No one could be around her. It's almost as if she were, almost, it was almost like she was a leper in her own city because when a leper would come into a city and would want to walk down the street he would have to stand way back from anyone around him and shout out unclean, unclean so that they could part their way and allow this person who was unclean to come between them so that no one would dare touch them. And this woman who has this same kind of an issue, not leprosy, but she has this bleeding thing that would cause her not to be welcomed in her own home, our own family. And Jesus says, go in peace. And this gal who's working the streets, who's earning her living in the oldest of professions, as we commonly refer. Jesus speaks to her after she has anointed him and washed him and touched him. She says, go in peace. Well, where else could she go? Before meeting Jesus, where could she go? Anywhere in her city, where could she go? In peace. And I offer for your consideration... That there are people who are all around us in our world who have ailments and the only place and the most important place that they should ever be able to come is here and to this church to find peace. Where else would you want them to go? This is a place of refuge. This is a place of peace. Jesus saves. Luke 19, another story that you're all familiar with. There was this little man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. You remember the song, yes? And he climbed up in the sycamore tree, a savior for to see. And Jesus went home with him that day. And he has lunch with him. And he comes to Zacchaeus and says, hey, come down from there, dude. I'm going home. He didn't say, dude, that's a Californianism. But he said, come down because I'm going to go have lunch with you today. And he goes home with him. And Zacchaeus, after lunch has been served, and who knows what the conversation was like, after lunch is served, he stands up before the crowd and he makes this pronouncement. I'm going to give back everything that I've done that was wrong. And if I've ever taken anything from anyone inappropriately, I will return that was 400 percent. 400 percent. And then Jesus makes a statement about this, and he says, "This day, salvation has come to this house." Jesus saved. Our reading from this morning from Luke chapter 4. Jesus has gone, as was customary for him. He goes to the temple or to the synagogue service. And he reads this statement The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that expression, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, was in essence the expression that means the year of Jubilee. Now, some of you know your Old Testament history. And you know what the year of Jubilee was. You know, at the end of seven days, there was what? The Sabbath day. At the end of seven years, there was what? A Sabbath year. At the end of 49 years, seven times seven, there was this trumpet that would blast. And then on the 50th year, they would have what? The year of Jubilee. And we can have a lot of fun with this because what this really means is that all of the land that's been sold, all of the slaves who have been bought, all of the trading that has happened, it all reverts back to its original ownership, its original place. The only challenge with all of that is simply this. We really don't have any history, even through the Old Testament writings, we don't have any history that any of the Jews ever practiced jubilee. Jesus is here to proclaim jubilee. Sometimes the things, the most important things that God wants us to see are hidden from us, and we have to close our eyes to see them. There was a lady whose husband was up in years. She was in years herself. Her husband had passed away, and because of the nature of her health and the things that were going on in her family, she needed to move into a new apartment, a kind of an assisted living place where someone would be there with her on a regular basis. And so she's sitting in the foyer waiting to go into her new apartment. The challenge with this gal was that she couldn't see very well. As a matter of fact, she was legally blind. She really couldn't see hardly anything at all. And as the young lady who worked at the assisted living home came to her to escort her over to her new place, she's telling her about the bed and she's telling her about the bedspread that's there and and the little curtains that are there with the little eyelets that are on the curtains, the little pinholes, and she's describing the color and all of the things in the bedroom. And the woman said, it, it, it sounds marvelous. It looks wonderful. And the little girl couldn't understand it. She said, Mrs. Smith, how, how do you even know what it looked like? How can you be so excited about it? You haven't seen it yet. And she said, I don't have to see it to believe it. And I don't have to see it to know that it's going to make me very, very happy. There was hope in the concept of the Jubilee. There's hope in salvation with Christ. But the difference in the hope of the Jubilee and the hope in the salvation of Christ is it's not a hope that never brings reward, because the hope in Christ absolutely has a place for us. It's called a home in heaven. And she was. We've all been blessed with that hope if we've seen that Jesus saves. Sometimes God disguises the good stuff and you can only see it when you close your eyes. There was a little boy, six or seven years old. True story. He was six or seven years old and he had a friend in town that he played with on a regular basis and his friend's name was Harold and Harold was 87. But they played together a lot. And so the little guy was visiting with Harold one day and he asked Harold, he said, Harold, do you go to church? He's like, what do you mean do I go to church? Of course I go to church. He said, well, what is it like? What is church like? He said, oh, church. He said, it's amazing. He said, when I get to the building and I put my hand on that golden door with the silver door handle and I open that door and I open it up and there are like 300 people who are singing in the choir and they're singing this song that sounds like the angels singing themselves and he said it's just amazing and then we have the service and the preacher preaches a sermon that just wants me to live for Jesus more and more every day and after hearing this for several weeks or months the little boy finally decided to go to church with Harold. And there were about 25 people there. And it was an old wooden building that was barely standing. And there was no indoor plumbing. And the toilet was outside in a little building about three foot wide with a hole in it. Sometimes, sometimes, you can't see what God needs you to see unless you close your eyes. Jesus When you and I think of what Jesus has done for us, it ought to bring us to our knees. There were a number of people who lived in Jerusalem around the time that Jesus was being, beginning his entry into the city in the last couple of days of his life. And he comes into town riding on a little colt And they're coming out from the highways and the byways and they're throwing branches on the ground and and, and cloth on the ground and they're saying, Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna to the highest, we found the Messiah. And they leave everything to come and find the Messiah. They leave the plows in the field and they leave their homes and they leave the bread in the oven and they leave the table set as it was to come and see this Messiah and they follow him and they follow him until until they see the cross. And you find someone who truly is saved. You find someone who initially followed Jesus because they thought wherever Jesus was, there would be no misery. But they've now learned that wherever there is misery, there is the Christ. Jesus saved. So when is all this going to happen? Back to Luke chapter 4. Jesus has read for them this passage from Isaiah. And after he's read it, he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the priests, and he sits down. And he's anxiously awaiting a question because he knows what's coming. And they're wondering, when is this going to happen? When is it that you're going to heal the blind and you're going to heal the sick? And when are you going to restore the kingdom? And when are we going to have the real Messiah? And he says, today, today, the scripture is fulfilled. Today. Because you see, today is the day of salvation. Because Jesus saves. Maybe it's the healing that brings you to Christ. Maybe it's the opening of your eyes to the blindness of life that brings you to Christ. Maybe it's Living on the street and living like people on the street—that brings you to Christ. But Jesus saves—an expression that we don't hear too much anymore. We don't really walk around asking people, "Are you saved? Are you saved?" When's the last time someone asked you, "Are you saved?" Earth shall keep her jubilee. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Sing ye islands of the sea. Echo back ye ocean waves. This our song of Jubilee. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I don't know when the last time you've heard the expression. I don't know when you'll hear it again. But somewhere, somehow, maybe somebody is going to come to you one of these days. And maybe you'll be wondering or laughing or conjuring something in the back of your mind. But I just want to ask you this question. Are you saved? Are you saved? Please stand. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. From the tides all around. Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus said.